Tonight, we are going to look at another, a southern approach to Jerusalem. You may have noticed that Jerusalem seems to be kind of the center of everything here. We talked about how the Holy Land was really the center of everything. Like, if you were going to go anywhere in the world, you had to basically go through there in the early times to get to the Fertile Crescent, you know, down into Egypt. And so, where the world's population was at that time, uh, you really couldn't not hear about God. The God of Israel, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham. It's kind of interesting to me that even today, Israel is the thermostat for the world. What goes on in Israel is going to affect you, whether you like it or not. Right now, the war in Israel, I'm amazed at how many people, some don't even know what's going on over there. And they don't even realize that their life is being affected or certainly going to be affected. And... You might remember a while back we talked about the fact that the word God in Hebrew is Elohim. And when you have that I am at the end of a Hebrew word, it puts it into a plural form, Elohim. Anybody know the, the plural form of, or not the plural form, but the, the Hebrew word for Jerusalem? Yerushalayim, yep. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's literally I am at the end. Isn't that interesting? Jerusalem is a singular city, but it is given a plural form of that word. Is Jerusalem the same location as the Salem referred to in Abraham's day? Seems to be, yes. Yep. And so I think that that is very significant that Jerusalem remains a focus of the world. And the reason I think it's in plural form is because there are two Jerusalems. We see that mentioned in Galatians chapter 4. There is the Jerusalem that is above, that is free. And there is the Jerusalem that is below, the one that we're hearing about in the news right now, that is a slave. There is a physical and a spiritual Jerusalem. I don't think it's an accident that it is called Yerushalayim. For that reason alone. Now, um, we did talk last time, or you know, last time I actually had slides. <laughs> um, this Valley of Elah here. Gonna see what I did with my laser pointer. Well, I just hit a slide backwards. So the Valley of Elah, which is where David and Goliath had that epic battle, and how that went up down the Hushan Valley up to the road of the patriarchs, or you could cut across to the Valley of Rephaim up to Jerusalem. Tonight we are going to talk a little bit about this Valley of Rephaim. Rephaim I'll talk about a little bit more in a moment, but um, we're going to talk about that, but connecting it to the Sorek Valley. The Sorek Valley, where Beth Shemesh was at there, um, basically House of the Sun. Um, and then it goes down, connects the same place where the Hushai Ridge did, 
so that you could either go up this way or down below, but that would be kind of crazy to go down below. So the shortcut going through the valley of Rephaim. So these are the two primary southern approaches to Jerusalem. There's going to be a couple on the other side, but on this side, on the, on the west, these are the, the two primary ones. And so we're going to look at the valley of Sorek here um, and the valley of Rephaim. It is here in this valley of Rephaim that we're going to see the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 5.18 that when the Israelites discovered and found out that David was going to be king, immediately they sought to kill him. They sought to go after David. And I think that that is going to be very significant as we'll talk about here more in a minute. But... Um, you can kind of see that there. This picture is this Valley of Rephaim. Now, just to show you, this, there's the Rephaim Ridge, and then here is where you get into the valley. Right by that blue dot is basically around where this picture here is taken. And that is probably maybe oh, a couple of miles, two to four miles away from Jerusalem. So I want to talk about what is Rephaim. Again, it's in that plural form, but that's because the Rephaim wasn't just one person. The Rephaim represented a number of people. Giants. Giants of the land. In Genesis 14, verse 5, it says, In the 14th year, Ketolorma and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites, in Ashtoreth, Carnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Sheba, Kirathaim. Basically, what we're seeing here is a list of a whole bunch of giants. The Zuzites or the Zuzim, sometimes called in Scripture, were giants. The Emites were giants. Different people had different uh, names for them. You've probably mostly heard them called the Nephilim. Well, it's the same pretty much as the Rephaim. So we have a whole valley in Scripture named after these giant people, which is interesting. Okay? You just mean mighty men, right? Yeah, they were giants. Yes, I mean giants who were mighty men. <laughs> so Rephaim was just simply one of nine um, nations that were living in what we would now, you know, what Palestine, okay? Basically, the land of Israel before it was Israel. Now, by saying that, do not get me uh, wrong. Many people today say that Palestine, uh, as I mentioned before, you will not see Israel on a map in Palestine. You will only see Palestine because they will not recognize that Israel was there. All of the, the imams and the leaders of the mosques and all of those things, even in Jerusalem right now, will tell you that there was Israel never lived there. There's no archaeological evidence that, that they even lived here. It was never their land. And so they deny not only their existence today, but their existence in the past. Well, when we say Palestine... That was named after the Philistines. 
As a matter of fact, if you look at Palestine and the word Philistine, it is in Hebrew the exact same word. The letters are there. Because remember, in Hebrew, we don't have vowels. You only have vowel sounds. And so what we have are the Philistines. Now, the Palestinians would like you to think that this is their land because they are the descendants of the Philistines and they were there before Israel. No. First of all, where who is their father? They claim their father is Abraham. Abraham was not a Philistine. Abraham was actually a Chaldean. And God called him out of that. Who was their mother? Hagar. Hagar was an Egyptian. So even if it were true that these were the descendants of the Philistines, they couldn't be Philistines because their heritage that they even claim themselves is not from Philistine. It's from Egypt and Chaldea. So we've got some issues there. When I say Palestine, I'm just, just know that it's for your understanding of the land of Israel that I'm saying there. Before Israel occupied it. Before Israel was given it. I shouldn't say occupy. They were given the land. Okay? Deuteronomy 3.11 says, for, the, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the Rephaites. You might remember Og in the Bible. It talks about him, and he had a bed 13 feet long. What's that? It, maybe some will try and say that. I have about 13 based on the cubit. There's a little range in the cubit, but I think 16 would be a little high. So Og is one of the descendants here. Now remember, he was in Bashan, which is actually more north, is where he was king of. Deuteronomy 2, 10, 11. The Emim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, more giants. They were also regarded as Rephaites, Rephaites, the, like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emim. That too was considered a land of the Rephaites who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumites. I kind of like that one better, Zamzumites. I don't know, something about Zamzum that I like. But anyway, point being is these Rephaites were very famous. They were men of, you know, uh, fame. But they were giants. When the Israelites went in to spy out the promised land, these are some of the people that they, the giants are in the land. These, these Nephilim, these are the people that they were seeing. And, and they said, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. So I do want you to understand this, though. We have over 25,000 archaeological sites in Israel that have been found, and so many more could be. Just a tiny fraction of it has been archaeologically dug up. And then of what we have dug up, there's just a tiny fraction of it that we even you know, have or you know, get something from. Most of the tells that you see over there in Israel whether it be Megiddo or Dan or whatever, you are seeing maybe a 20th of the city, if not, probably not even that, 
because when you dig archaeologically, it is very slow. They say that if you would dig up Megiddo, just that one town, at the rate that it has been dug, it would take 700 years to complete it. 700 years. So we, there's so much more that we could discover. However, with that said, we do see quite a bit. We, we get to tell the story of what Scripture shows us here. And I want you to know that in no way have we found in archaeology, in all of Israel, any place for people that are 25 feet tall or anything like that. Today there are some ideas that there are giants, that these giants of the past were, you know, as big as houses, you know, and it, it, all of this kind of thing. I don't think that's the case, personally. Number one, we know that the Bible has recorded history quite well for us. And the biggest one we see is Og's bed, and that's his bed. That doesn't, I doubt that, you know, he f made a bed to fit him exactly. We see Goliath that's just under 10 foot tall. I think that we see that there were clearly giants that were in that 9 and 10 foot tall range, maybe even a little bit taller, but that's about it. I would say that's what archaeology shows us. That's what the Bible would tell us, and so I'm sticking with that. So just a little caveat there to think about um, when we talk about giants. I don't want you to get too carried away. Anything else that, yeah, go ahead. Well, yes and no. It all depends on how we translate what an L is and all of that too. So I, what the book of Enoch some describes, I just think is beyond physics even, you know, beyond a reality of what could happen physically. So... I'm sticking kind of more like if there were people that were 30 and 40 feet tall, I bet it would have been mentioned in Scripture. They were mighty men. Now, again, I'll let you guys disagree with me on that. That's fine. But that's where I'm standing. I'm going to let the Bible be my foundation for everything. Not anything else but the Bible. That's my starting point. Okay? So that's just a little side note. But... Um, I want to look here at 2 Samuel 3 a little bit more as well because I think that this is an important story of something that went on in this valley. This very valley that is known for these giants. As I said, as soon as David becomes king, the Philistines come after him. And David is going to go, and this is going to start when he is going to wipe out the Philistines for the most part. He's going to um, overtake them. That is part of the, the very fact that this was happening, that David becomes king and is like, oh, man, I don't even have time to breathe. Now they're already trying to kill me. It would be very tempting for David to probably think, man, when, I, when does it, you know, when do I get a break? Saul's been trying to kill me all my life. Now finally he's dead. Now I'm king and now this is what I get. But I want you to understand that this was part of God's plan. That the Philistines were even marching up against Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 3.18 foretold David would be raised up for this very purpose when it says, 
Now then, do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. So, not just the Philistines, but all of them. And David is the one that is going to be able to take, and I don't think it's an accident, that he's the one that has peace throughout the whole land. So that when David, or Solomon becomes king, Solomon has peace because David took care of it all. Why? Because David is a Christ picture. Jesus rules on the throne of David, right? From the stump of Jesse, a root will bear fruit or will grow, come out, right? Who is that? Well, on one hand, it was David. On the other hand, it was Jesus, a prophecy of Jesus. And so what we're seeing is that Jesus... I'm going to put it the other way around. David is a picture of Christ. Therefore, his life is going to be a picture of Christ. Now, I also believe, just from a physical, historical perspective, as I said, this was the plan. I believe that what's going on in Israel right now is only happening because God has allowed it to happen. God has a plan. I'm kind of excited to see what it is because I know that God's plans are good. Yeah. Yeah, well, nothing they they teach or believe lines up with facts. Nothing. Well, going to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, this is what it says, and we kind of want to look at this in greater detail. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now, this stronghold might be down by Masada. I don't know. Um, there are similarities in the word stronghold and Masada that connect those two. But some might think, okay, he was running away here. I think he was just being wise. But also, if you look at Second or First Chronicles chapter 14, giving us the same story, it says this, but David heard about it and went out to meet them. So it doesn't say anything about him going out to the stronghold. I tend to think putting the two together that he went out to the stronghold, prayed, and he kind of went to his quiet place, you might say, prayed, and then came back out to meet them. Anyway, it says in verse 18, Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. The fact that they had spread out seems to suggest that they were everywhere. That this valley is filled with people, giants. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. It almost seems like a no-brainer to me. Why would David need to do that? I'm king. They're coming to kill me. Should I attack? Duh. I mean, that, it seems to be kind of that. But I think there's a big lesson in this. Even what is obvious sometimes, we should always inquire of the Lord. You know, Last week, I think it was, that we were praying and, well, we were praying and we were talking about hunting. And, and I think it was Simeon who said, you know, something, but I'm not going to pray for that. It just seemed pretty trivial. 
On one hand, I get that argument, and I think that there is an aspect of truth to that. But on the other hand, I think God wants us to take everything to him in prayer. Every day. Even the trivial. Because it's that's, that's how we get to, to rely on him. That's how we get to, to practice to, to never be independent. It's when we're independent that even something that seems so trivial and obvious gets us into trouble somehow. I've said this many times to other people, but when I was in India, one of the things that impressed me the most is we never went anywhere without prayer. I get into my car almost every time to drive to Hastings. I don't even think about praying. I got this. Pretty obvious. I know where I'm going. I know where I, you know, I know the car I'm in. I, I got this. But I don't know what's going on. Other people driving down the road, etc. We should get in a habit of doing nothing without going to God and praying. That might seem a little bit silly, but that's only if we think that we have the strength and we have the power to get through this life. We don't. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack? And the Lord says, yes. I will surely deliver them into your, the Philistines into your hands. Verse 20, so David went to Baal Perazim. Now, that word Baal or Baal is literally how it's pronounced. Baal Perazim. Baal is the word Lord. I am Baal to my wife. That is actually the very word in Hebrew, Baal, is the word husband. So, in Hebrew, she's my Isha. I'm her Baal. Isha. <laughs> so, it's interesting, that word Lord. Now, first of all, that could teach, as far as a marriage lesson, too, that a husband is to be Lord of the house. To, to be head of the house. Now, I know that opens up all kinds of cans of worms as far as what that means. That, that's another message. Okay? I think most of you understand that doesn't mean that you take charge, you know, the large and in charge kind of guy. It, being a Lord, as David was Lord, he was a servant to the people. Okay? But anyway, I'll leave it at that for now, but just to let you know. It's important, though, to see that word, Baal Perazim, because it literally means the Lord breaches or the Lord breaks. So God is saying, I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So now he's going to a place where the Lord is going to break, not David. It's not called David Perazim. And there he defeated them. He said, as water breaks out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. And you go, well, why would David carry the idols off? Probably because Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 5 told you to destroy them, burn them, get rid of them. And so they carried off the idols and more than likely, I would say, burned them, destroyed them, and did all that. 
just like the commandment told them to do. So David, when he became king, saw Satan coming immediately. I don't think it's an accident that the very moment that Yeshua, Jesus, starts his ministry, he's baptized. That seems Everybody seems to say that's the beginning of his ministry. What's the first thing that happens? He goes up out into the wilderness, a stronghold, the very place David, the Bible says David goes. And what happens? The enemy, Satan, and the Philistines are a picture of Satan, comes to tempt, comes to try and defeat. If you really are God, if you are the Son of God, do this. If you are Son of God, tell this, you know, these rocks to be bred, all these things. And he kept going. He didn't fight. He didn't do anything. What does he do? He relies on the Word. In essence, he lets Baal Perazim, the Lord, break. What's also interesting is that you would think that this is one and done, but it isn't. This is the first battle that goes on. The very next verse is going to tell us that the Philistines go back, they gather their troops again, and they're coming for a second battle. This time, as they come up here through the Valley of Rephaim, this is the spot where that first battle seemed to take place. It seems like this second battle, it doesn't say for sure, might be around the same place. But God says, this time you need to go up and go around them. And so David somehow circles them and gets behind them. Now you can see that between Jerusalem on the other side, you've got all the desert. Over here you've got all these mountains. There's no towns. There's nothing. The upper Sorek Valley. And so once they got in this valley, there was only two ways out. The way you came or to keep moving forward. You were trapped. God told them, go behind and so they couldn't go back. And so the Bible is going to tell us that these guys have to go all the way up to Gibeon and then to Gezer. Now Gibeon from Jerusalem is about five and a half miles. It's about 18 miles from Jerusalem to Gezer. And so he chased them all the way to Gezer. Gezer. Alright? So... Again, this is the second time. We're going to read this here in just a moment. Again, this is the Valley of Rephaim, giving you an idea of what, you know, this is where all of this is taking place. So verse 22 of 2 Samuel 5 that we were just reading in continues saying, Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the Valley of Rephaim. So they must have been numerous again, just like what we saw before. Verse 23, so David inquired of the Lord, he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. A couple of things before I move on on that. I'm going to actually go here so that you can see this text now. First of all, David inquired of the Lord again. It wasn't obvious. I'm going to do nothing. What did what miracles did Jesus do before inquiring uh, his father? 
Yeah, none. None. Matter of fact, Jesus even said, I do nothing unless I hear my father telling me. David is doing nothing without inquiring of God. It is pretty fascinating, even if you look in Scripture, before every miracle you see Jesus do just about, you can see that prior, just prior to that, he's in prayer. Again, just telling us, when are we going to stop trusting in ourselves? Cursed is the man, Jeremiah says, whose strength is his own. I can't even get to town. Your marriage in trouble? You can't solve it. You can't fix it. Your health problems? Your doctor can't fix it. Okay. I'm not saying you can't go to the doctor. I'm just saying if that's what your faith is in, he can't fix it. Work troubles? Your business failing? I don't care how hard you work or how good your business plan is. That's not going to pull it out. You need to go to the Lord and trust Him in everything that we do. So, before we continue, I want you to see here as well, David being a Christ figure, this rings very loudly to me, the book of Revelation again. Many of these battles in the Old Testament seem to be a picture of end times. This is the second time the Philistines are coming up against King David once he is anointed king. Well, you know, when the Lord comes back, yes, he is our king now, but there is going to be a coronation of the king. And again, it's fascinating that it happens at the fall festivals in the Bible. That is when kings were coronated. We believe that the Lord is going to come back at the fall festivals. And I believe Yeshua is going to be coronated. And what happens, according to the book of Revelation, pretty much immediately once the Lord comes back and he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is split in two, what begins to happen? Well, he's a banner that causes everybody to go to Jerusalem, and then all the nations do what? Attack. They come up. They, the king is there. We need to go attack him. The very same thing that happens here with David is exactly the pattern seen in the book of Revelation. As soon as Jesus comes back, the nations war, and they're coming up against him and his people in Jerusalem. But you say, there are two battles. Why twice? Well, I find it interesting that, and again, this is just an analogy that I see in Scripture, but bottom line is, what we see in Revelation is... Jesus comes, calls everybody to Jerusalem, the nations come up against them, and there is what we call the Armageddon battle, and the word goes out. The people don't have to fight. God's word goes out and destroys everybody. Baal Perazim, the Lord breaks out. Right? From the sword of his mouth, they're destroyed. And then you have a thousand year period in Revelation 20. A thousand years of peace. Everybody's in Jerusalem. Everything's happy, right? Good. And then, at the end of that thousand years, it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, then there's another gathering of the nations. 
from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, it says. Now, I find it interesting that in Revelation 20, when Gog and Magog is brought up, it is the second battle there. We hear a lot about the Gog and Magog battle today. Could this be Gog and Magog going on right now? And I say, no, it could lead up to it. But Gog and Magog seems to be after the thousand years of Revelation 20. At least that's what I'm seeing here in Revelation 20. Okay, The second battle. Now again, Baal Perazim, the, you know, the, the giants are going to be wiped out by God. It, we don't have to fight this battle. But we see that same pattern going on here in the Valley of Rephaim. So, anyway, this poplar tree says, Do not go straight up. Circle around behind them. Attack them in front of the poplar. As soon as you hear the sound of the marching in the top of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So the Lord goes out in front. That's also exactly what the Bible says about the end times battle, right? The saints follow behind. That same picture. Now this word poplar trees is really kind of a, a unique word. The word in Hebrew, it's actually spice trees. And that word for spice, it's the exact same word that is used in what the priests were anointed with and what the priests would use. Some, were, some translations will say it, the balsam trees. Some will say mulberry. Anytime you see all of these different ones, it means we don't know. <laughs> but the word spice is used, a spice tree. And I find it interesting that the word that is used is the word that is used for what's in the temple. That the priests would use. That it's a godly thing. And it made a noise that the Lord going in front of them caused these trees or whatever to, to rustle or something. And I just think, you know, have you ever been out there and all of a sudden a big breeze comes up and you hear it in the trees? Almost like a mighty rushing wind. I like that because it makes me think before we go to battle that the Spirit needs to move. When Christ was there before he sent the disciples out there. After he died, he says, wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit is given. And one day they're there and they hear the sound of a rushing wind when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in flames of fire and in tongues of fire. That's the Spirit of God moving. What that means, I don't know, but I think that there's definitely a connection here between that and Pentecost. So, God works in us both to do or to will and to do. It goes on and it says in verse 25, So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer, or Gezer. Now, I like that because why does David even need to go? The Lord went out to strike them. 
it says, in front of him. So what was David's role? I don't know. All I know, I don't know if God like paralyzed these Philistines with fear. I don't know if they fell like dead and David is just coming up and just, you know, killing these people. I don't know. All I know is it says the Lord stroke, strikes them and then David has to go behind and strikes, strikes them down. But it wasn't a battle. He chases them all the way, you know, to Jerusalem and then another 18 miles. So clearly some of them were running. They were struck with fear. I don't know. All I know is that God could just wipe them out and say, there you go, now go back to Jerusalem. But he doesn't. And this is his M.O. This is what he does all the time. When he delivers you, when he blesses you, when he saves you, when he does any of this, he asks you to put your skin in the game. I don't care what it is. Even salvation, your skin is in the game, folks. Now that might rub some people wrong. No, no, I, I'm saved by grace. Yes, you are. But what does he say? Faith without works is dead. If you think that you're saved and now you don't think that you need to go behave, yeah, good luck. You're not going to make it. Your skin's not in the game. Now, I'm not saying that God isn't going to empower you to get your skin in the game. You can do nothing without Christ, but I'm telling you this, if you do nothing, your skin is not in the game and you will perish. Literally everything that God does. He tells the Israelites when they're crossing into the promised land, take the, take the, the ark and, you know, it's a flood stage. Now go. Now, I would think, okay, God is going to like dry up the water so that the priest can now go on dry ground. But what does the Bible say? It says, when the sole of the priest's foot touched the water, that means until that time, the waters were raging, flood stage. And until their foot touched the water, God did not act. He was going to make them face their fears. Because, I mean, this isn't just a little stream. You have to think of raging waters going through right now. And you're, you're carrying this and you're going to touch that water. That would put some fear in you. But until you have faith to move in faith, to act in faith, God was still. I mean, we could go through example after example after example in Scripture. Why didn't God just say, hey, you know, you're free. I'm going to strike the uh, Egyptians. Now you're going. But no, what does he make them do? He makes them do the Passover lamb because I want you to see where this is coming from. He makes them go ask for, you know, knock on the doors of your, your enemies. Knock on their doors and say, uh, can I have your stuff? Yeah, I, can you imagine? And they say yes. He makes them go out into the wilderness and then he sees the enemy coming and they have to 
they have to put their faith again in God. But they have to move. They have to always do something. I don't know what struggles you're going on in life, but I'm telling you this, that God will you know, cause you, He will will in you and cause you to do. You will not be able to just sit back and say, all right, I'm a Christian, I go to church and, and you know, I'm saved, so, all right, God, bless me. I'll see what it is. No, He expects you to go work hard. You know, part of the commandments, as we've talked about before, is the Sabbath day. And we love to talk about the Sabbath day and the rest. Oh, man, I love, I look forward to the rest. But don't forget, it says, six days you shall labor. And on the seventh day, you shall rest. It'd be easy for us to think, especially in America, oh, I'm going to retire early. I'm going to retire at 50 so that I can kick back, relax, and not do anything anymore. That's not what God intended us to do. You see, He wants you to do. David had to go do. He had to fight the battle, even though he knew it had already been won. I still got to go through the motions. Speaking of Gezer here, um, just to give you a little background on this town that he takes him all the way to, um, one of the pharaohs here that you can see pictured of Egypt, Thutmose, um, he took Gezer, it says in Scripture in 1 Kings 9, 16, he burned it with fire, killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it to a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So the Philistines are wiped out. The Canaanites are going to then live there later in the days of Solomon. And then Egypt, which was you know down south, he's coming up to go attack somewhere else. He's just passing through Israel. And he conquers Gezer from the... Canaanites, and gives that city to Solomon's wife. All right? Um, which was a daughter of his. It's interesting, in 1 Kings 11, verse 3, it says that he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. A lot of people say there's no way somebody can have 700 wives. That's impossible. People couldn't do that. That's just the Bible being, you know, allegorical and silly. Well, that's not necessarily the case because Pharaoh Amenhotep III had a thousand wives in his harem, and nobody's questioning whether that was real or not. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, if it's in the Bible, they'll doubt it. If it's not in the Bible, then it's a fact. Anyway, what's neat is they have excavated Gezer. We know exactly where it is at. And um, they have found exactly what the Bible says. The, uh, basically, the Canaanite civilization of it, it was burned. They found carbonized or burned wheat that is there. And below that is the early bronze period, the Canaanite occupation. As the Bible says, above the wheat is the middle bronze period, which is very affluential and affluent, um, rich which would be the days of Solomon. And so underneath it, Canaanite, poor, and then it becomes rich, just like what the Bible would indicate. So just a little side note on that. 
Philippians 2, going back to this, our skin in the game, verses 12 through 13 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. All of those are important verbs. You've got to move. This is the key, I think, to the law of God. I hear many saying, the law is over. Jesus fulfilled that. We don't need to do that anymore. No, absolutely not. The law no longer condemns me, praise be to God, but he expects you to do. That's exactly what the New Testament tells us time and time and time again. If you love me, you will do what I say. You will keep my commandments. He puts in us the will and the power to do. We should have a desire to keep God's commandments, a desire to keep his laws. And it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do you work out? It's interesting what he attaches to that command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, okay, how? Well, it is God who works in you both to will. How? And to do what? Well, read the rest of the New Testament. Constantly is telling you, keep my commands, keep my commands. If you love me, you'll do what I say. If you say you love me, okay, but uh, how's that word? If you say you love me, and you, uh, I'm mixing two verses in my head here now. Well, that, that's another one too. But if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it, it's everywhere. And that brings him pleasure. Why is it that if I don't steal, everybody's happy? But if I say, you know, one of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not steal. Oh, but, but you know, don't put yourself under that, that, that burden. Or... If I don't eat unclean food, oh, that's legalism. That's a problem. But when James says it in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21 and chapter 18 or 19 when he says to the new believers, don't eat food that's been sacrificed, don't eat food with blood in it, and gives all these food laws, everybody's like, oh, that's no big deal. Why is it that when we do the festivals, because God's word says to keep doing it, Jesus himself did it, the disciples did it, and I decide to do it, it's like, oh, are you trying to be a Jew? What's wrong with you? Yeah. But yet, if somebody, and they say, what's wrong with you? Jesus fulfilled that. They're done. He did that. But yet, if they go do Christmas or Easter, we're not out there saying, what are you doing? Jesus was born already. We don't need to celebrate that. 
He resurrected 2,000 years ago. Why are you doing that? That's legalism. Right? Why is it that there is such opposition to obedience to God, getting our skin in the game? Even when I tell you that we are supposed to have our skin in the game, there's a part of me that I, I, I know I, I have to explain this because, well, or else people are going to think I'm legalist and, and I'm in trouble. I should be able to talk about obedience to God without having to put a disclaimer in every time I say it. But I can't. It's funny because they get upset with that, but you have a whole denomination of Catholics that believe that you have to go through all these sacraments in order to be saved. Right. So they're okay yeah. with that and those new rules that don't exist anywhere in the Bible. Or maybe it's that you better be wearing a suit when you go to church. Now, I, I have no problems wearing a suit when you go to church. I think that's great to give God that respect, but we've made it you know, something that you look down and judge somebody because they don't. So anyway, something to think about there. Um, on the right side here, this is really the only north to the south approaches on, and that's the route of the patriarchs. Today, I think it's Highway 35 that goes there. It is still, it's called the Road of the Patriarchs to this day. So that highway um, is following the Road to the Patriarchs. And this is why you will see so many major cities along this route because this was the route that Abraham walked on. On the left, you can see Abraham uh, down there. He came from Beersheba up to Jerusalem when he was uh, told to go sacrifice his son Isaac. That would have been the route that he would have taken. <coughs> you can also see Hebron up above there, a little bit above Beersheba, where David and Absalom and them would kind of go back and forth from Hebron. Just going to fly through some of this quickly. Uh, you also see here in Jerusalem, this is a, from a satellite picture. Um, there's the Dome of the Rock. This is the old city of David. So really, this is pretty much what Jerusalem looked like at the time of David. All of this has been, you know, today added. The, the hills have been filled in a lot more, even though it's still very hilly. Um, it it's nothing compared to what it would have been when David was there. Um, the dotted line there on the right shows you the road of the patriarchs there. So you can kind of see the Hinnom Valley and the Rephaim Valley um, where that would have been. So the Rephaim Valley, which would have been here, comes pretty right up to the bottom of the Hinnom Valley. And it doesn't look like it here. It looks like there's a great distance. But when you go outside of the city gates of the old Jerusalem, you cross the road, literally, and you can look down into the Hinnom Valley. And so there really isn't that much space here. Someday I hope to take the rest of you there to see that. Um, so <clears throat> you see Bethlehem going up on this road, and then it goes up to Jabus, or which is Jerusalem, and then to Gibeah. The reason I call it Jebus here is to bring up the story in Judges 19, which parallels Sodom and Gomorrah almost exactly, where you have this Levite man who cuts up his concubine into 12 pieces, and um, he goes, he doesn't stop in Jebus because at that time the Israelites didn't live there. 
the Jebusites did. And he says, no, I, we're not going to stay in a place that's not run by us, you know, that's not godly. So they go to Gibeah, and then only to have the men of the town, you know, rape his concubine. Now, I'm not going to get into that story tonight. I thought about talking about it a little bit, but I'll just give you a couple of tidbits that some Jews look at that as that was a picture of Solomon, or not Solomon, but Saul to come, because Saul was from Gibeah. Remember, once shortly after he becomes king, um, there's the, I don't remember who it was, if it was the Philistines or who it was that attacked um, and surrounded this city of uh, Jabesh Gilead. Is that right, Jabesh Gilead? I'm getting my, it's not up here. Anyway, um, so he goes and rescues them, but the bottom line is in order to get people to come, he cuts up an oxen into pieces and sends it out to the nations. And so here you have a man of Gibeah cutting up a concubine to gather the nations for war, and then you have Saul from Gibeah cutting up twelve, or cutting up this oxen to sending it out to the nations to get them to go to war. So anyway, uh, I'll leave it at that for now, just something for you to look into. Then um, we have the ascent of Ziz. This is, i just bringing this up because this is what I wanted to show you last week when my slides did not work. The, this is another approach to Jerusalem. Um, here's Tekoa on the blue dot. There it is here. Here we see the Dead Sea. Way down here at En Gedi, it comes up the ascent of Ziz, and then it's going to go up, and you're going to go to past the Herodian, or the Tekoa, the Herodian, up to Bethlehem, and then to Jerusalem. Here is a picture of what that is. So this is the route that when Jehoshaphat, like we talked about last week, when he sent out the singers to fight, the other armies came up the ascent of Ziz. They came up here, and it was on this route then that Jehoshaphat came out to meet them, and the singers went out ahead of them, and God, again, fights the battle for them. And this Nahal here, that's just the... These, Nahal is like a deep valley, a wadi, a, a canyon type thing. And so you've got one on each side that goes all the way up there. And so you can't really cross that. Later I'll show you pictures. We're talking like fall off and die cliffs, okay? Then, um, <clears throat> so this is kind of what we talked about last week, just showing you Moab and all these armies came up and it says that they went up at En Gedi and then Jehoshaphat comes to meet them out there in the Valley of Barakah, Valley of Blessing. There. Here is the Herodian along that path. This is one of Herod's palaces that he built out there. Herod was, this is the one that ordered all the babies under two years of age to be killed. And so he built this palace, again, outside of Jerusalem not too far from Tekoa. Tekoa is the town that Amos grew up in. Um, but anyway, along this path then that you take up to get to Jerusalem, just off of it is the Herodium. And we know that Josephus told us that Herod was buried there. Well, it wasn't until 2007, but they found Herod's tomb there on the other side in a cave at the Herodium. And so this is basically his palace there. So 
That's all I'm going to do tonight. I'll kind of close out just showing you the reviews here of what we have talked about. You had the Sorek Valley, Agilon Valley, underneath that the Elah Valley, those three entrances. This top one, you would come up and had to enter Jerusalem from the north. Okay, From the Sorek Valley and the Elah Valley, you could come up and then enter Jerusalem from the south. There was no way to get there straight across. You either came from the north or from the south. Up above it, we talked about Benjamin. This is the territory of Benjamin, and there was that plateau. So everybody had to kind of come through the territory of Benjamin. On the other side, <clears throat> on the eastern side there, we had from Jericho. Okay, the Dead Sea would be down here. From Jericho, you could either go down and then enter in from this east side, or you had to go all the way up and then come back down through Benjamin and enter from the north. And so those were the ways, and that was the pass that you had to go by that uh, I don't remember if I showed you pictures of the pass or not, but where uh, I'll talk about it later if not, so don't worry about it. But the pass is the, the, a very narrow area where we know uh, Jonathan, when the Philistines were there and they were, um, I did show you a picture of it, so that's basically that spot. And then we have here the southern approaches again, from down below, you know, Jericho was up here, and now down by Engedi, the one that we just talked about going up to Koa, is on that side there as well. And then the last one here uh, really isn't adding a whole lot, but just the northern approach on the road of the patriarchs coming through. So those are the, the, the paths that you get to go to get to Jericho, or to get to Jerusalem. When you read in Scripture, you're going to hear some of these names talked about Quite a bit. And I think it's going to be valuable for you just to have a little bit of a geographical bearing when you do. Now, uh, Tel Aviv today, this is just uh, the last picture I'm going to show you. This is Jerusalem up on the hill up here. You can see these buildings. Tel Aviv is basically about 40 miles away, 39 is all and Tel Aviv is on the Mediterranean Sea here okay and so basically you have to kind of keep moving down highway one is the main highway that will go in there but there's a few different routes that you could get in there but Jerusalem is here and so Tel Aviv you're looking at 39 miles across but one of the reasons I wanted to show you this is just to give you a better idea of why you can't go in just straight across that you're either coming in from the north or coming in from the south because you can even see there's nothing even there today. It's just too rough and rugged uh, on this satellite photo to get into Jerusalem. And I find that fascinating because it's, it's just like a perfect spot that God orchestrated that this would be where his, his people would be. That this would be the place in which his eyes would always dwell and, and peer upon. So, all right, any thoughts or questions before we close in prayer? All right, well, my prayer for you this week is that you get your skin in the game, whatever that means for you, but just know that God will will in you and cause you to do, but we need to stop being independent of him whatever issues it is in your life.
So we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for just fighting our battles, but yet expecting us to get involved. Lord, we have become very lazy as Christians that uh, we just expect you to just do it and say, oh, we can't do anything. Well, we understand that, Lord, but we also know that you want us to do. You want us to get involved. We just know that it is not our strength, not our will, not our power, not our abilities. The food that we put on our table, Lord, it, it doesn't come from our abilities. That's a blessing from you. Our safe travel home tonight, it isn't because we've done it a thousand times. It's because you protected, you watched out for us. But yet you still expect us to get behind the wheel. And so, Lord, thank you for being our all in all. And may we just begin to realize that more and more in our days and lives, that when we face challenges and fears and, and maybe impossibilities, that we would realize that though it looks grim, the battle has been won by you already. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, that reminds me real quick today and just listening to Daniel Joseph, something just kind of hit me that we serve a God that is so amazing that if all of a sudden America is attacked, it would be so easy for me to go, oh, no, we're oh, this is it. We are in trouble. But don't forget that God already has the battle won. He's going to expect you to stand up and fight. He's going to expect you to hide. He's going to expect you to, to do whatever. But don't ever lose that confidence that he has already proclaimed the victory. Whatever that is. And so just find strength in that. I'm not able to put it into words what it was in my spirit, but just such a peace that came over me about whatever trouble comes upon us. So. Maybe. Maybe.